Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. This is the last regular episode of 2023, though there will be a special bonus episode published on Christmas Day. Thank you to everyone who has been listening and enjoying these conversations, and special thank you to all of the authors who've come on as guests this year, and to my friend Alex Lukashevsky for letting me use his music. The other thing I will say, because it is the end of the year and it's right before the holidays, if you have been enjoying the more than 30 hours of conversation that this podcast already represents and want to perhaps show your thanks for all those hours, your best option is to buy a copy of my new novel, Lump, published by the Rare Machines imprint of Dundurn Press. If it helps convince you, the Toronto Star called it one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far, Zoe Whittle said it is both a page-turner and a disquieting and complex take on marriage, illness, and privilege. Thank you, Zoe. And 49th Shelf named it as one of their books of the year. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Ron Sexsmith. Ron is a celebrated and award-winning singer-songwriter. In 1991, he released his first full-length album on cassette called Grand Opera Lane. And as you'll hear in this conversation, I used to own that cassette. He has released many albums since then and has earned praise from people like Elvis Costello, Elton John, Ray Davies of the Kinks, John Prine, Gordon Lightfoot, Leonard Cohen, and Paul McCartney. His songs have been covered by Rod Stewart, Nick Lowe, Emmylou Harris, Feist, Michael Buble, among many, many others. His most recent album is The Vivian Line. Ron's first book, Dear Life, A Fairy Tale, was published in 2017 by Dundurn Press. In its review of the book, Publishers Weekly said that Sexsmith's novel has much the same effect as his music, conveying uncertainty with fearlessness and heart. Ron and I talk about the odd start of his artistic career, about the intense feeling of imposter syndrome he had when Dear Life first came out, his aborted attempt to write a prequel to the book, and his plans to write and record songs to accompany the book, which he hopes will one day form the basis of a musical or even a film. My most recent book came out on Dundurn, and literally just this morning, I got an email, and maybe you got it as well, which uh, from Dundurn saying that authors can buy their own books for 50% off. They're offering a 15% discount, which right. is very generous, but it's always a little odd to get a, <laughs> uh, a note from your publisher offering your own book, <laughs> offering to sell you your own book at a discount. Yeah, you feel a bit. I mean, they, what do they have? Like a a basement full of them? Or they just want, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. But but you know, we've been, you know, on, when I'm on tour, we sell quite a few of these books. So you know, I've sold more of my books on tour than anywhere else. You know, so so I think my wife is pretty good at when you know she'll notice when the supplies are getting low and she'll you know she'll order a new box of them or something. So. The other connection I wanted to to let you know about is. Um... 
we have a we have a mutual friend, uh, Don Kerr. Oh yes. When I was in high school, which was, you know, thirty years ago now, thirty plus years ago, my last year of high school, uh, a friend and I, um, the band I was in actually opened for Don's old band, Dinner Is Ruined. That's how we we made this connection. Right. And we actually traveled to Toronto from where we grew up, which was like uh, the Ottawa Valley. And we slept on the floor of the old gas station. Oh, yes. Like literally, literally on the floor of the of the studio. And Don would step over us in the morning to go do his like bakery delivery job, I think. Well, you're bringing back a lot of memories. Now. That was the that was the era. <laughs> yeah. And he actually Don showed us two things that he had worked on. One that he was currently working on, one that he had completed. The thing that he was currently working on was the um, Edie Brickell uh, solo album. He had yeah. like rough cuts of it. The other thing he did is he gave me a cassette of Grand Opera Lane. Mm -hmm. Your sort of like first or one of your first sort of demo cassettes or albums, yeah. uh, which I loved. And I played it till it was, you know, shredded and didn't play anymore. Yeah. I wanted to congratulate you, though, because um, as part of my research, I can see that you are no longer releasing music on cassette. You've graduated <laughs> beyond cassette. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all changed so much, you know. And like, even when I got my record deal, um, I was a little bit um, disappointed that my album wouldn't be coming out on vinyl, you know, because that that's really my favorite format. Um, mm -hmm. But now that's starting to happen. Now, that's, you know, I think they've released eight or nine of them on on vinyl. But, you know, it was just, it was really touch and go for me in Toronto because that wasn't really happening, you know? Like there was, yeah. you know, we'd go play somewhere and maybe three people would be there and all the labels had seen me and and they weren't interested, you know, because I wasn't packing them in on Queen Street or whatever. And um, so I, I really, I was, you know, I shudder to think where I would be now if that, if, if I, you know, didn't get this publishing deal with Interscope and all that. Um, cause they didn't, in LA, they don't care what goes on in Queen street, you know, they just right, want to, right. you know, they're not as sort of short sighted. Um, but Don, you know, uh, it's weird for Don because we worked as couriers together too. And I, he's probably my dear, one of my oldest and dearest friends, but at the same time, we're so, um, unlike each other, we've never really had anything in common, <laughs> you know, like he doesn't drink coffee, you know, <laughs> so this. Uh, you know, we we we've and we've toured a lot together, but when we're home, we've almost never, uh, you know, or when we got home, we'd almost would never hang out or anything. But he's been just uh, kind of my rock in a way. You know? mm -hmm. Although you you also share not just the musical and the friendship, you've both published kind of uh, fairy tale type books. You've you've got that in common as well, though very different yeah. kinds of books, extremely different uh, yeah. tones and approaches. Yeah, um, yeah, I remember when that was going on. You know, he was, I was kind of jealous because I thought, oh man, I don't, I don't think I have a book in me. I don't know if I'll ever write one. And he was, uh, you know, and he wrote music for it, and the whole thing was this had a life of its own. Um, mm -hmm. You know, also at that time he was playing, you know, with the Rio Statics. You know, <laughs> like he was, you know, busiest man sort of in showbiz for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you know, Don, uh, I think, you know, his political views and all that, his heart's always in the right place. Mm -hmm. And I think that story, The Sniffing Princess, which was kind of like an environmental story, 
I just think, yeah, I mean, good on him, you know, for doing that. I remember listening to that to Grand Opera Lane. I even remember listening to it as we drove back from Toronto and just being like, my assumption mm. from the sound of your voice, from the kinds of music you were playing was honestly, because Don hadn't told me the backstory of like, oh, this is my friend Ron and he's this guy and we're in this band. He had just said like, this is something I played on. Yeah. And I listened to it and I thought, oh, clearly this is like a 50 or five year old guy <laughs> that they found playing like busking somewhere. And they're like, we should get your, we should record your tunes. You know, you had that like, yeah. you know, uh, you know, 21 going on 55 approach to music. Even then there was this uh, like old soul quality to it. Yeah. And um, I mean, you know, even when I got my first record deal, I was already like 31, which, you know, it's not, it's not old, but it's for the music business. It's, it's, it's not young. And I was just so relieved that I finally got in the door. Um, Cause I, you know, towards the end there, before I got signed, there were a lot of friends who meant well, who were saying, well, you know, you've got kids, you really should uh, pack it in. You know, you should like yeah. try the job with the post office or try to, and I just knew that if I did that, that I, I just would never, it would never happen. And so I'm just really proud of myself that I, I stuck with it. And cause you know, I still have to pinch myself. I mean, you know, especially when I think back about the nineties, back when the record companies, you know, still had money and I'd be in New York for a month and then I go to LA to mix for a month. And they were just throwing all this money around and I didn't sell a lot of records. So, um, there's no way I could ever recoup, but, uh, Anyway, it's it's just uh, it all happened, and I think there was a feeling in my mind, anyway, that it, that was sort of meant to be, and uh, and I believe in all that kind of stuff, anyway. You know, though I I there must be a thought sometimes where you look back at those days and you think the amount of money they spent on like flying me to L.A. that that one time, yeah. I could have recorded an album with what it's what they spent on the hotel and the you know just the flight and hotel. Yeah, I mean it, it was it was very um, decadent, very wasteful. It was like this kind of sort of hedonistic kind of binge in a way. You know, you're going everywhere. The label's taking care of you, taking you out for drinks after, and I mean it was a lot of fun. I mean, cause mm -hmm. in, a, in a weird way, like I say, I, my twenties were spent being dad and delivering packages. So I felt like I was having my twenties and my thirties or something. And we were just, you know, it was, it felt traveling and everything just felt more carefree back then. You could uh, arrive at the airport, you know, half an hour before your flight and still make it on with all your, with all your yeah. bags. And, uh, or now it's kind of a nightmare to have to go anywhere, you know? Yeah. And put your cigarette, you put your cigarette out on the stairs of the plane, you know, as you're walking in or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I just uh, I just feel very fortunate that I was, you know, I have friends that never got in the door, you know, and they were and they were, be you know, better than me and everything, you know. So it was it was you can't really dwell on it or anything. But I felt when I finally did um, sort of, you know, make it, I really put the pressure on myself to try to be good, you know, if, you know, because the, initially the press for my first album, they were saying all these nice things, which. I was kind of surprised actually, because I didn't even know if I liked my first album. Hmm. Uh, but the, it, it created all this pressure for me. Like, 
well, you know, they're saying all these nice things, so I don't want to be a like a fluke or something. So I was always trying to stay ahead of myself and stockpile songs. So when it came time to write, I mean, to record, I, I wasn't, you know, scrounging around. Right. Well, there's that thing where people always talk about you have like a lifetime to to write your first record and yeah. then, you know, 18 months to write your second one or eight months to write your second one, depending on what kind of tour schedule. So you were yeah. already sort of thinking ahead. Yes. And, yeah. and you know, it's like, um, you know, I was listening to another episode that you did and they were talking about how long it takes sometimes for a record to come out that when it finally comes out, you've already moved on to the next yeah. thing. You're, you're more yeah. excited about the new songs. And that happened a lot too. And uh, I was never um, a priority at the label. So they would sit on my record sometimes like a year and a half or, and, um, and I really wanted to have a body of work. So it's kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pleased with myself that I was able to, you know, I mean, I I think I have 17 records now, which is, mm -hmm. it's kind of, you know, mind blowing to me. Yeah. Well, you said, you know, those were hedonistic days, but I'm, yeah. I'm certain that's relative. Like you weren't Motley Crue or no, no. Kiss or something. There weren't like, no, I just mean the money there was ladies falling out of hotel rooms and things like that. Yeah. No, that wasn't, I mean, there was a bit of bad behavior here and there, but we were always, we're from Canada, you know, so we're always, nice to everyone you know but there was right. I just it was weird because I, I was never one that girls noticed and all of a sudden you have a record and your picture's on the front and somebody in Norway decides that she likes you and you haven't even met them yet you know right. they, you know what I mean so you go there and and I just found yeah it was just so surreal and uh so I mean but yeah no it wasn't Motley Crue or anything but it was right. just you know we definitely we, you know, we burnt the midnight oil or whatever they say. <laughs> yeah. You might, you might ride a bicycle into the hotel pool, but maybe not a Cadillac <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. No, Moderate. I never, there was never any room damage at, at any point in my career. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, just to sort of move to the, to the book stuff, um, in terms of like, your reading habits were you the kind of person who was kind of always packing like a few novels when you're going on yeah. tour because i know there's a lot of downtime like you're you're playing for two hours and maybe you're doing a couple of radio interviews but that's a yeah. you know that's another 20 hours of a day that you got to fill yeah i mean i i i would so i'm sort of funny with books because i'll read a whole bunch of books in a row and then i may not read anything else for months or a year or something but i i i used to read a lot in the van when we were traveling which they say you shouldn't do because you can get motion sickness if you're trying yeah. to do whatever. But, um, or when I was on an airplane, because you can't do it. There's really nothing to do. So mm -hmm. I read a lot of books on airplanes. And, but I, I always, you know, if I was in a hotel room by myself when I probably should have been reading, I would never feel like it then, you know. And, mm. and, um, but, you know, during the pandemic, I read a lot of books because it just felt like the whole world was ending and it was and uh it was just something to take my mind off the insanity of of that and uh but yeah and don don kerr was always reading these huge volume like these big historical books and tolstoy and all this stuff like that <laughs> and almost just sort of challenge can i read 
you know, War and Peace or whatever. And I think he, so he finished a lot of really heavy books where I was mostly reading, you know, fiction. Of, mm. uh, I mean, you know, in a paperback form of, of something. I, I liked all the old, I'm a big Dickens fan. He was my favorite. And I like, um, you know, Steinbeck and I like Mark Twain and all. Mm. I'm pretty old, like old school about the music I listen to as, as well. And there's certain wisdom from those guys that, and humor that, uh, I don't know. I just find, you know, I just find that sort of sparks me, you know, when I'm in my own writing, um, you know, cause I have this Twitter page where I do stupid jokes on it and it's right. all, all wordplay. It's all a form of writing. And that's what I always loved. You know, Dickens would always have these comical asides or a descriptive aside that was really funny about a certain character or sometimes their names would sound like the way they looked, you know, or, mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mark Twain as well would have that. So so that's, um, you know, when it came time for me to write my book, which was, I still, uh, I just was way over my head. I didn't know what I was doing. That's all I could really sort of, you know, access the books that I loved and in, in a very lowly way, you know, try to raise it sort of as high as I, I could. You know. Right. I actually read um I'm I'm a big Dickens fan as well and I read Bleak House over the, the early in the pandemic and I think that's actually the most like fucked up <laughs> wild book where yeah. there's like three pages where it's just kind of a riff on again on someone's name or on someone's <laughs> ear or their nose or something you're just or even though it this start, starts off it was starts off by describing the the justice system or something, right? Yeah, yeah. And stuff, almost like making it sound like it's a sea monster or something, you know? Yeah. And it moves slow and it's not very just. Yeah. But, and I just thought, well, that's interesting. Like, you know, that's even when I was starting my book, I was like, well, how do I, because I, I had a, an arc of a story in my head and I was like, well, how do I, how do I do that? You know, how do, and, um, but all those guys, they, they, you know, they had had this amazing opening line that just sort of, and you were in, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I just, uh, I have so much respect for people that write because, you know, I did try to write a sequel to this book or a prequel actually. And I just, I kept hitting a, a wall, you know, I, whereas the first book felt for me um, more inspired, you know, I could see the characters in my head and I could, uh, and I, it was invested in them, you know, and I wanted to see what was going to happen. Whereas, you know, with this prequel, I felt I was trying to make things line up, you know. Right. Whereas in the first book, things sort of fell into place, you know, naturally. It was, it maybe felt like you were pushing something that had come so organically. Yeah. The, the original time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I may revisit it, but at a certain point, uh, you know, I mean, if there was a huge response for my book and demand for it, I may have worked harder, but it's not like I certainly didn't set the world on fire with my book. Um, so my main thing now with it, because I'm a songwriter, is I'm trying to get it off the ground as a musical or a, mm -hmm. or a movie or a, uh, anything, really, because I think with with the right director and screenwriter and all that or playwright, the things um the sort of shortcomings of the book I can address the, you know because there were things I didn't know how to do I wanted it to be scarier I wanted it to be funnier 
and I did the best that I could, but someone like Neil Gaiman probably could have just knocked it out of the park. But I, so, um, but I think with the right sort of team of people, I could, cause the songs, I'm really happy with the, with the songs I wrote. So I'm really hoping that someday, you know, I'll go to some theater and, and they'll be doing it or, you know, and, or there've been a few film companies that expressed interest and then, mm-hmm. and, you know, and then, you know, then it doesn't go anywhere. So it's, it's a bit, uh, it's like pushing an, you know, an elephant up the hill kind of. So, yeah. I will say with my limited knowledge of that world is that that's, that's almost every author's experience with like film companies is they're always like, we love yeah. it. We love it. And then you don't hear anything ever again, or it takes three years to get another. We love it. We love it. We're still thinking about it. Yeah. Um, we're skipping ahead a little bit. I want to, I want to sort of talk about the idea of like prequels and sequels and musicals, but I want to talk a little bit about more about the kind of Genesis of it. I mean, you've written that you, it kind of came to you in a dream. It was yeah. years, years before it actually became yeah. a thing. Right. And then I read somewhere that you were sort of literally like like going to a writer's festival saying, does anybody know who could publish this? Does, does, can yeah. you connect me with a publisher? And then you were connected or someone from, uh, I think it was Penguin Canada, got in touch with you yeah. and brought you in from a meeting, which is very unusual. You, you yes. were, And I think you're aware of that. That's like... Yes. It's rare that an editor go, oh, do you have a notion for a book? Well, let's let's have a meeting and we'll, especially well, for a novel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I felt bad about that because there's people, actual novelists that never get a call from Penguin, you know, or something. And it was so weird. And I wasn't going to publishers at that time. I was mostly talking to people that I knew who, who were like in the in actors and things. You know, mm-hmm. I have this idea for a story. Do you, what do you think of this? And and some of them would say, "Oh yeah, that's uh, yeah, that sounds like a play." Or some people would say, "Oh, I think that's like a children's book, you know, with pictures." And and I would have been happy with it being anything. But then one day, out of the blue, I get uh, an email from a guy at Penguin, and he just heard a rumor that I had a, a book idea, and and they called me into the office, and it was so. And I hadn't written one single word. And so I'm in this boardroom and I'm like trying to explain. And I really didn't have a lot to go on. I just had this arc of a, of a boy who, a good natured boy who, who um, accidentally kills a dog that belongs to a witch, you know. And I, because that's what I saw in my dream. I had this, one of those early morning kind of dreams where you, you know, you fall back to sleep and then you wake up and you're like, what was that? That was weird, yeah. you know. Yeah, and I didn't know it was something I'd seen before. If it was a, and so I'm telling this guy at uh, Penguin, and I'm pretty nervous. I don't know. I don't know that world. And 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 at the end of it, he says, "Yeah, I think you should write that book. That's that sounds like a that's a novel." But I'll never know for sure. Maybe they were just saying that so I would leave. You know, I, I don't really. <laughs> It, it was the, the following month I was going on tour and I told my wife, I said, I'm going to in the van while everyone else is listening to music or whatever. I'm just going to try to write a chapter every day because we would have these seven, eight hour drives mm-hmm. and I would be in the backseat typing furiously away. And um, and so by the time I got home from tour, I had the first draft of, of my book. And so, um, you know, then came this, long period where I could tell when I handed it in, they seemed to be more interested in me writing 
like my memoirs or something, which right. I don't really have any, you know, desire to do that, at least not yet. And, you know, so we're having a meeting for my book and they're talking about a memoir. I go, well, so I could tell they weren't really into it. And so I started to, um, sh you know, shop it around. You know, I, I have some writer friends like Claudia Day and that they would say, check out mm -hmm. this person or this. And I did. And, and you know, then you'd wait and you'd you'd hope that they wouldn't hate it. Um, and then finally, uh, kind of about the time when I was sort of giving up on it, uh, Dundurn reached out. And there was somebody there that got what I was what I was trying to do. And I just really wanted to make a heartwarming story. You know, I did, it's, it wasn't a heavy book. It wasn't, I just wanted to write a fairy tale that didn't have any handsome princes in it or anything, just like right. real people doing kind of brave things. And um, and I could see it so clearly in my head, the town, and I could see how everybody looked. And, um, and then, so then it was this long process of, I think I did about maybe 12 drafts of the book. And then there wow. was, a, you know, a substantive edit. And then there was the actual edit period. Um, it was all very exciting. Um, so, and this was all happening 2015, 2016. And I finally finished it in, uh, I think, early 2017 or something. But, uh, uh, yeah, and I just, I still, uh, I never saw that coming. I didn't think. Mm -hmm. I would ever see the name, the word author beside my name or something. Right. I still feel kind of like a fraud about that because, I mean, yeah, I wrote every word myself and, and that there's people who think they're writers, but they've never written anything, you know? So, <laughs> right. So I feel like, well, I did, you know, I put my money where my mouth is and I wrote the story. And uh, yeah, and I think, I don't honestly know where I stand with Dunder and if they even would want another book. So. Well, and there, you know, just to 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 say, I mean, there are a lot of reasonably well-known literary authors whose yeah. books are really kind of editor-author collaborations. So yeah. the idea that you put that much into yours, I mean, that should help a little bit with the imposter syndrome because, yeah, yeah there's a lot of authors who kind of they hand over a manuscript and it's like this is as far as I could get it. And the, yeah. the editor takes it the rest of the way, make, cleans it up and sobers it up. I, 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 I wonder about the year it came out. I mean, it came out in two, 2017. Yes. Um, which was the same year that your album, The Last Rider, came out. And you were talking about when that album came out, you had said like that was the that was kind of a year of transition for you. Yeah. As far as I can tell, you were leaving Toronto or getting ready to leave Toronto you were kind of changing your life. Was the book kind of part of that as well of like moving away from certain things in, in terms of like your career, in terms of like your perspective on life? Was it part of that process of, of that yeah. shift? Yeah, because um, it's weird because I think the album came out in the spring and I, I went and toured you know, all over the world and I got back and then then the book tour started in, in the fall. And, and, and I, you know, we just bought, bought our first house and I didn't even get to spend any time in it in 2017. We were just going. And um, so it was, it was pretty, uh, you know, heady at the time. <laughs> and we didn't know anybody in Stratford and, and I didn't know what I was doing there at first. But um, it was all very exciting because Toronto had become, I think, sort of a bad place for me. I didn't... Uh, 
I don't think I was thriving there. And and now this was kind of like a second shot at a new life in a new community. Um, and I would walk the river every day. Whereas in Toronto, I would walk downtown with cars beeping and everything, carrying <laughs> right. a big coffee. Whereas here, it just felt just so much more peaceful. And um, yeah, so that was a big year. And then, I mean, it was so weird uh, g- going out in the fall to do all these book festivals because I'm, you know, I'm on a panel with like Heather McNeil and people and I just felt like, oh, I'm not worthy of this sort of thing, you know, and people were reading their books like they, and I didn't want to do that because I never liked the sound of my speaking voice. And, um, and there was one time we were out there in Vancouver or something and everyone had read a chapter except me and someone from the audience was like, we, I'd really love to hear you read a chapter of your book. You know, and there's all these real seasoned writers on the panel and they're like, oh, right. yeah, right, we should do it, you know, go. And so I kind of went up to the podium and I was shaking and and then I did it. And I thought, oh, well, it wasn't so bad, you know, and everyone was everyone was very nice and very supportive. Um, but I definitely again, I felt, you know, out of out of my league in a way. So all this sort of like performer skills and chops and whatever tricks and things that you had built up over the yeah. years those those weren't there when it came to be a <laughs> as an author i don't know that i have any tricks built up because <laughs> you know i've always just i love you know obviously um i've been performing for a very long time but i've never felt like i'm not a great performer i'm not like freddie mercury or something you know i just stand <laughs> there, i stand there and sing and and i and the people who are into me i think that's what they want they just want to come and hear me sing my songs and i always give it my all but so I didn't really feel I had any chops at all in terms of reciting my book or, or you know, I did the best I could. And uh, I mean, today my voice, I'm rest, struggling with a cold. So my voice is about an octave lower than it nor- normally would. But, um, but yeah, but after that, that one book festival, every other one I did, I would read a chapter and I started to get more comfortable with it. And um yeah, and it was just exciting to be noticed for something that wasn't really, you know, in my wheelhouse or something. Talking about the the idea of making it into some kind of musical or creating music around it. I think when the next record came out, I had read something where you said those songs kind of got in the way of finishing the Dear Life songs. Like you were prepared yeah. to work on those Dear Life songs. And as you were working on them, these shorter self-contained songs is that how it worked just these other tunes kept kind of interrupting well i was having a bit of a a writing frenzy which Mm -hmm. i think just had something to do with the changes the new town and i was i was writing like uh it was going out of style or something and before covid i was in the in the process of um staging a cabaret version of my musical with some of the actors from the festival and, you know, we were going to do like sing the songs and the actors would take turns reading the script. And I was pretty excited about it. And then, you know, obviously that didn't happen because of the pandemic. And so um, I really felt, you know, that I was back back to the drawing board. But I, I, I still I haven't given up on it. I still whenever I'm around people in that world, I'll, I'll ask them about it and get try to get their advice and because um, I think at the very least, I, I, I think I would like to make an album of songs from Dear Life at the very mm. least. 
because then people could know the music exists. And if after I'm gone, if somebody wants to do, you know, mount it on stage, they can. Um, uh, you know, this one film company I was talking to, I was super excited because they saw it as almost like a live action movie, like, you know, Into the Woods or something. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's it. That's exactly what I'm I'm dreaming about. And we had a really a few good meetings and, and then they weren't able to find you know uh like the right screenwriters or something so whenever somebody comes at me with you know with some good news i i always have to sort of uh you know sort of not get too excited and uh because things tend to fall through <laughs> so right yeah. right is there is there a sort of frustration with that too in the sense of like you know at this point in your career you know I go into a studio, I create, I record these songs that I've been working and either with all, all by myself or with a band and we put, lay them down and I know how that gets created. And I know how that gets released and it's this thing. And then I can go on tour and the rest yes. of it, even though there's other people involved, it's still very much your project. Whereas yeah. a book is this weird thing where you, you write it all yourself and then there's just all these other connections you have to make and people have to get involved if you want to turn it into a musical or a film or anything it's it's yeah. relying on other people to make it happen and money too right and so, money yeah so it is a bit um yeah and it's and, and it's always you know my word against theirs like i'm thinking it has potential and i think it could be a really nice movie mm -hmm. but i'm not from that world so they don't so they're not going to really value that, my my opinion. But I right. also I'm also a big movie buff, you know, and I love musicals and stuff. So I, it's something I've I've always, um, you know, kind of studied or paid attention to, even when I was very small. And so I can see it all in my head. And and I know that these days a lot of people want something that's more edgy or more, you know what I mean, like sexy or something. And this story isn't that it. And I see it being a kind of a musical, almost like Oliver or like Willy Wonka or something, mm. like a doll type thing. And like I say, this one film company, they really got it. And I was sort of sad when they kind of, I feel like they sort of, you know, gave up or something. If you could, if you could dream cast it, if you could pick anybody yeah. to play, yeah. you know, the witch or, or Darren Headlight. Yeah, living or dead, who would be your choice? Who do you see in your head as the? Well, you as know, those... uh, there's a character in the book called Maggie Headlight, Darren's mother, and I've always saw uh, uh, Olivia Coleman playing her. Mm. You know, I just love her, and the character of of this Grimsby, this guy Crad Grimsby. I've always thought John C. Riley would be a really great. I can see he, that. Kind of looks how I picture. In terms of the the two younger people, I don't really know who's out there who would. Um, and also, I would want singers who weren't like almost like professional singers. I kind of want natural voices, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know. And I, I, I had thought of a few different people for the role of the of the witch. You know, like Anne Hathaway, and I thought of different. I don't know, but I think she already played a witch in another movie. So I, yeah, I, in yeah. Uh, in witches, the role doll. Uh, yeah. yeah, the remake. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's probably uh, done with witches then. But I thought of different <laughs> people. You know, uh, Ang Angelina Jolie, for example. You know, and this all this sounds like insane to talk, throw these names around. I actually do know John C. Riley, though. We've hung out quite a bit in L.A. 
So maybe that wouldn't be out of the question, you know, sure. but I don't know Olivia Coleman or, uh, so yeah, but I, I do have a, I see certain actors that I think would be, would be good, you know, so. And in terms of writing that, again, you, you said you, you worked for a bit on the prequel. Yeah. But found it was maybe less magical and more kind of yeah uh, homework than, than, than the original. It was more and, of and and then I kept shooting myself down because I thought, well, what's the point of having a prequel when hardly anybody's read the the actual book? You know, they're not going to know who these characters are or, or what the deal is. So, and that was the problem too. Like, how do I write this so that it's a standalone book by itself that people, whether they ever read Dear Life, they could still enjoy it. So I was having all these problems and talking to writer friends, you know, um, and just like. You know, I, there's a few in Stratford, you know, and and they they were always very supportive and, and but I just don't have uh, the, the know-how, you know, and maybe that'll come, but uh, but I have it on my desktop and every now and then I'll go read, like I think I had five or six chapters written. Right. And, and I'll go back and, and I'll get excited again, you know, but um, yeah. But it's not something that I won't be totally sad if it never amounts to anything. Well, probably what you need to do is book a tour yeah. with some really long drives between cities and then do <laughs> <Yeah>. the like <laughs> sit at the back and write a chapter, yeah, a chapter per drive. No, you're right. And uh, yeah, because I was, uh, I mean, calling at my wife at the time when I was writing this book, she hardly would you know she wouldn't even see me you know i was i get home and i go in my room and i write right 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 and uh just type in furiously away sometimes i get her to read something and get her opinion but um she was she was pretty blown away at my commitment to it um but that wasn't the case when i set out to write this i just i would get i would get momentarily um inspired and then and then it would go away. I have this odd feeling, though, that you will find your way back in it, but it'll be it'll be through the music. Like you'll, I like the idea of making the music as an album and then using that to create the musical, and then maybe that will drive, yeah, create the drive to create the prequel and sequels. So I mean, uh, it's a long life, so I just have to get, and you know, I just have to find the spark again, and um, and not be, you know, during COVID, we spent so much time watching. Netflix and things, you know, <laughs> whether we could have been writing or we could have been, you know, yeah. reading. There's a lot of things to waste your time. Anyway, but we'll see what happens. But um, I'm definitely going to record these songs at some point. It's always going to be there for me to, whenever I want to pick up the pieces again. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.